and welcome to Jiu-Jitsu 22. I'm Tish Durkin, and the weight under which today's GOP argument is going to be crushed is the weight of its claim to the fame of living up to America's revolutionary ideals. Contrary to its customary boasts, the current trumped-up GOP amounts to one big betrayal of our nation's founding. What's that? Is it the woke mob that's coming for the first and best of our American heroes? Toppling their statues, smearing their reputations, insisting upon relocating our nation's birthday to 1619, when African slaves first arrived, rather than 1776, when great men in wigs founded a great nation in Philadelphia? No, actually, those are just the phony terms of a phony political war. The latest battle broke out when the New York Times published the slavery-centering 1619 project and, much more ominously, schools started ordering a version of it to teach the children. The war is phony in the sense that it only seems like a war between the GOP, which purports to uphold a traditional, unreservedly admiring version of America's origins, and Democrats, who are open to revising that view to incorporate less uplifting tableau, such as one group of humans owning or exterminating another. Or, as the GOP might put it, it's a fight between straight-up patriots who take pride in America and Antifa-loving agitators who want to swap that pride for shame over charges of racism, sexism, and all the other isms these left-wing lunatics love to slap on the past till there's nothing left but the bruises. Truth be told, if this were a real war, I'd stand with the left-wing lunatics. But it's not a real war because nobody is on one of the sides. While all kinds of people working from all kinds of perspectives and motivations are challenging, complicating, and indeed attacking the old boosterish Spirit of 76 version of the founding, there's nobody really defending it. Sure, when the left wants to pull down a statue, the right wants to leave it up, the left wants to take somebody's name off a building, the right wants to leave it on, the left wants to downgrade the reputation of our revolutionary stalwarts based on the values of the 21st century, the right wants to give them a pass because they lived in the 18th century, and all this rigmarole can give the general impression that the left is out to destroy our national heritage and the right to preserve it. On the contrary, and I do mean contrary. The current trumped-up GOP constitutes a profound rejection of America's founding and of our founders, even as cast in the absolute rosiest, least critical, hooray for white patriarchy light. Let's step back a second from the question of whether we should venerate the signers and the soldiers and the framers we all learned about in grade school, to the question of what it logically means for our present-day political allegiances if we do venerate them. Ask the question that way, and the answer is clear. To the extent that one admires the greatness of Franklin, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, and the rest of them, one must abhor the grotesquerie of Trump, DeSantis, Hawley, Cruz, and the rest of them. Pretty much any major or even minor American founder could serve as a case in point. But in the interest of time, I'll keep it to three historical heavyweights, Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin. And no, I can't believe I'm leaving out Madison and Hamilton, but don't worry, sports fans, I'll get to them later. Let's start with the man who's a monument, George Washington. What was the unique, singular, defining act of George Washington's entire public life? If you had to pick one moment, one decision, one action that set him apart and indelibly marked his place in American and indeed world history, what would it be? 
Yes, to his everlasting shame, he owned many human beings, more thanks to his marriage than just about anybody else in Virginia. Yes, to his everlasting glory, he led a motley, inexperienced, underfunded, sometimes barefoot army to military victory over an empire. But Washington wasn't the only man in history who held slaves, and he wasn't the only general in history who achieved an impossible victory. What set George Washington apart was that he willingly gave up power, and not in favor of any handpicked successor or regent or puppet. Actually, come to think of it, I shouldn't have said one moment, one decision, one action, because he did this twice. On December 23rd, 1783, a moment of victory, a moment when many citizens of the nascent United States of America would have been delighted to crown him king, a moment when he could have enjoyed absolute continuation of the absolute powers vested in him as commander-in-chief of his miraculously triumphant Continental Army, Washington resigned. He went home. A few years later, he was unanimously elected, albeit by the tiny number of legislators who had the vote back then, and four years later, unanimously re-elected to serve two terms as president. To be sure, by the end of that second term, Washington was taking a pretty good battering from many sides, and yet he could have kept on winning. But no, to the astonishment of the nation and the world, he said, so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. I'm done. You guys take it from here. And if you ask me that, not the Declaration of Independence, not the surrender at Yorktown, not the conclusion of the Treaty of Paris, it was the appearance on September 17th, 1796 of Washington's farewell address in Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. That was the moment that the American nation really came into being. 224 years and 45 peaceful transitions of power later, we have an entire political party that would rather see the United States Capitol desecrated, everyone in it bodily endangered, a free and fair national election discredited, and our democracy gutted, than admit that their guy has lost power. And they think they're standing up for George Washington? Now let's turn to another founding father, whom the right never tires of supposedly defending from the woke mob, Thomas Jefferson. For me, Jefferson is the most frustrating of the major figures in early American history. So much to revere, so much to revile, so many tortured, failed attempts, even on his own part, to rationalize and reconcile the two. Now, I don't buy the whole he was a man of his time excuse for Jefferson's holding slaves because he was so far ahead of his time on so many fronts. He can't just be let off the hook for choosing human bondage as an occasion of conformity. But for the length of this episode, and only for the length of this episode, let's go with the most upbeat possible depiction of Jefferson. Let's say that the fact that he owned many and fathered quite a few enslaved people simply marks old Tom as a product of his time and should not dim, let alone extinguish, the light of his greatness. What is that greatness? What does it hang on? What is it made of? We know what the man himself thought. Of all the accomplishments in his long life of versatile genius, Jefferson wanted three to be etched on his tombstone. I won't spend any time on the first one, author of the Declaration of Independence, because as far as I know, no one from either of today's political party is agitating against our split from England. So to gravestone item number two, author of the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which reads in part, 
All men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinion in matters of religion, and that, here's the money line, the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. This was a great big deal. It didn't just constitute a definite break with the traditions of Europe, where citizens were generally obliged to adopt their country's official religion or pay a price that could be anything from material forfeiture to burning at the stake, where policies were openly made and wars bitterly fought and events frankly interpreted in terms of God's pleasure or wrath. It was also a departure from what had been going on in the colonies. In Virginia, for instance, those who failed to attend Episcopalian services were required to pay a fine. And it wasn't a departure that everyone was willing to make. Patrick Henry, for example, strenuously argued that the concept of established religion, whereby church and state basically helped each other along, should not be abolished but broadened to include multiple Christian sects. Thomas Jefferson basically flipped the bird at that one. No, Jefferson was adamant in his determination to protect the rights of, quote, the Jew, the Gentile, the Christian, the Mohammedan, Muslim, the Hindu, and the infidel. And he was mightily supported in this by none other than James Madison. Of course, anybody is free to prefer Henry's take on things. But if we're talking about the founders of this country, does anyone think one Jefferson plus one Madison adds up to less than a Patrick Henry? Come on. Anyway, the passage of Jefferson's statute in 1786 represented the victory of his vision for Virginia, which of course flowed into the constitutional framers' vision for America. Here in the United States of America, provided no harm was caused to others, you could think or do whatever you wanted in terms of your own faith or faith community, but that faith was expressly not to help or hurt your ability to function as an American. Pro-Trump Christian nationalists are now in an all-out fight against that basic foundational principle, and it's not hard to see how they've gotten a foothold. Americans are always mixing up the founders with the pilgrims and the Puritans who immediately followed them, and who were striking out to break fresh ground for God on earth. Their concept of religious freedom was the freedom to practice their own, very stringently Christian religion, and to exclude everybody else's. When Ronald Reagan repeatedly spoke of America as God's favored city upon a hill, he was not quoting the statesman of 1776. He was quoting a clergyman of 1630. God only knows what that clergyman, John Winthrop, would have done in response to Jefferson's taking scissor and razors to his New Testament and cutting out references to the divinity of Jesus Christ, reserving the depictions of Christ as a moral figure, but leaving the miracle-working Son of God on the cutting room floor. But Jefferson did that. He thought he had every right to deface his Bible, and the guy next door had every right to venerate his Bible, and the guy at town over had every right never to touch a Bible or a Koran or any other sacred text if he didn't feel like it. And no one should lose or gain an inch of American ground as a result. Which leads us to the third and related achievement. Jefferson wanted to be seen by everyone who ever visited his grave. Father of the University of Virginia. Clearly, Jefferson's effort here had to do with his general love of intellectual inquiry, for which he would also lose major points with MAGA. But we'll leave that aside for now. For now, I'll just remind everyone that Jefferson specifically founded the University of Virginia as a secular institution, purposely setting it apart from Harvard and Yale and all the other big-name early American learning centers that had started as seminaries. 
In stark contrast, the father of the University of Virginia did not want his brainchild to offer religious instruction at all. Needless to say, Jefferson's tombstone does not mention that he owned slaves, something which he would no doubt have liked posterity to forget. Of course, we cannot and must not forget. In its internal and probably eternal debate over what to do with structures erected in praise of Jefferson, the left is struggling with how to balance Jefferson's participation in a longstanding evil of which America subsequently fought a war to rid itself against his conception and fervent lifelong furtherance of an innovative good on which America prides itself. In contrast, the right excuses the one while attacking the other. Talk about turning things upside down. Today's GOP is trying to make a civic virtue of soft-pedaling our third president's legacy of racial oppression while denigrating and discounting his sterling and eminently American legacy on religious pluralism. And they think they're standing up for Thomas Jefferson? And last but not least, Benjamin Franklin, the only person to have signed all four of the documents that breathe life into the United States of America. The Declaration of Independence, the Treaty of Alliance with France that enabled victory in the Revolutionary War, the Treaty of Peace that ended that war, and the U.S. Constitution. Now, in certain respects, Franklin makes a much better poster boy for present-day right-wing ideology than left-wing. After all, he personified the self-made, self-reliant, rags-to-riches character that the right tends to cite as evidence that government intervention is not only unnecessary, but actually harmful to individual flourishing. But once Franklin had enough money to do pretty much whatever he wanted, what did he want to do? Strengthen the group. He famously forfeited the chance to make loads more money by declining to patent any of his many inventions because he considered them a gift to the public. That was such a big word with Franklin. Public. The systems he designed, the institutions he founded, the society he envisioned were all about the public, public libraries, public fire departments, public education. Now, maybe if he were alive today, Franklin would agree with Republicans that such public goods would be better off if it were left to private charities and benefactors rather than taxpayer-funded government entities to insure them. I doubt it. That's the fun of history, though. What you can't know for sure, you can kick around forever. But this we can take to the bank. Benjamin Franklin loved science. He was very arguably the foremost scientist or natural philosopher of his day. In this connection, he was an inveterate finder of fact. He spent hours, days, months, years meticulously discerning facts and patterns of facts so as to know how to harness natural phenomena and mechanical properties for the practical betterment of human life. I think it's so perfect that we always think of Franklin with his bifocals on because he was always looking so intensely at everything and seeing everything in more than one way. At a time when sailing across the Atlantic could involve terrifying storms, marauding pirates, and debilitating seasickness, Franklin spent his crossings taking measurements to chart the Gulf Stream. In preparation for that famous kite-flying experiment in which he discovered electricity, He scrutinized everything from the sparks on people's fingertips after they'd rubbed something to the tippy top of the church steeple to the clouds in the skies. It's anyone's guess exactly where this Pinchot would land him on the political spectrum today. But the idea that he would do all that work to discover facts and to determine the significance of facts and then decide to throw those facts out the window and act as if ignorant of them because there was some political payoff for doing so 
is unimaginable. He was so devoted, obsessively devoted, to the concept of solving real problems for real people in the real world. The idea that he would manufacture or exaggerate non-existent or barely existent problems so as to enable himself to play the savior coming in to solve them is unimaginable. So the notion that Franklin would consider himself the proud forebear of the anti-vax, climate change-denying, gender-neutral restroom catastrophizing party, also unimaginable. I mean, for crying out loud, the man invented the lightning rod. He found a way to hold valuable buildings harmless from the fire of the sky. Could there be a more painfully direct contrast with the current trumped-up GOP? which has yet to meet an American structure it doesn't want to burn down. And they think they're standing up for Benjamin Franklin? The peaceful transfer of power, the separation of religion and state, the preeminence of reason based on the discernment of fact. The current trumped-up GOP could not be more emphatic in its disavowal of all of the above. And that is their right but they can't reject the ideals of the founding and put themselves forth as its sole and rightful heirs. The enablers of January 6th, the shunners of science, the wannabe re-establishers of state religion, are not fit to speak the names of our founders, let alone lecture the rest of us about how we mustn't disgrace their legacy. They're the ones who are pulverizing all that is good in that legacy. And what they are not pulverizing, they are chipping away at or dismantling. One misdirection, one misappropriation, one nugget of misinformation at a time. They have no intention of honoring what was honorable about these great, greatly flawed men who signed and soldiered and framed our nation into its ideal of itself. They just want to save the statues.